Good evening. QAnon and the Congresswoman hearings in Washington. Mayor de Blasio explains why he won't take the vaccine yet. And the history of vaccine hesitancy, its roots in the Tuskegee experiment. And we speak with a leader and founder of the African National Congress's armed struggle in the 1960s, who went on to work with Nelson Mandela. He speaks of his support for the BDS movement, those and other stories. We also talked to John Kiriakou, who is a former CIA agent and whistleblower, who discusses his meetings with Rudy Giuliani, Randy Mastro, and others to try and get a pardon and uh, how that turned out. It's quite a story. Stay tuned. And this is the WBAI News for February 3rd, Wednesday. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The far-right extremist group known as the Proud Boys was formally labeled a terrorist entity by the government of Canada today. Now the government can seize property connected to the group and banks must report its financial activity. The Canadian agency responsible for public safety says the Proud Boys consists of loosely related chapters located internationally. During a presidential debate last September, moderator Chris Wallace pressed Donald Trump to disavow the Proud Boys. The president instead pivoted to Antifa, an unorganized anti-fascist movement. Proud boys stand back and stand by, Trump said, prompting T-shirts and memes in support of the fascist group. Other groups listed as terrorist entities by Canada include another white supremacist neo-Nazi organization known as Atomwaffen or Atomic War, as well as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And congressional leaders paid tribute Wednesday to slain U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick in the building he died defending, promising his family and his fellow officers that they'll never forget his sacrifice. Sicknick died shortly after being struck with a fire extinguisher by a still unknown participant with the mob of Trump supporters who invaded the United States Capitol on January 6th, trying to stop the count of electoral votes and possibly assault or assassinate members of Congress. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Sicknick was a patriot who will be remembered by lawmakers each day as they enter the Capitol. We'll never forget, she promised his family who attended the ceremony. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, along with their spouses, paid their respects as well. Meanwhile, the House Rules Committee spent today debating whether or not to strip freshman House member Marjorie Taylor Greene of her positions on the House Budget and Education Committees. Taylor Greene, an extreme conservative from a district in northwestern Georgia, has expressed support for the QAnon conspiracy and the notion the 9-11 attacks were an inside job, as well as mass school shootings being faked and conspiracy theories that Jewish lasers started the California wildfires. The chair of the House Democratic Caucus is Brooklyn Representative Hakeem Jeffries. He says appointing Taylor Green to the Education Committee in particular was egregious. In my view, we have to take one step at a time. And what is in front of us right now is the outrageous decision by Kevin McCarthy to put Marjorie Taylor Green on the Education Committee. When she clearly believes that Parkland didn't happen and that those young people weren't murdered. Those families aren't suffering as a result of that school shooting and that Sandy Hook didn't happen. How can you put someone who is a mass shooting denier who mocks the survivors of Parkland on the Education Committee? So that's in front of us right now. Let's deal with that issue. There are broader concerns with the fact that the House Republican Conference 
appears to have been taken over by the Conspiracy Caucus, the Crackpot Caucus, and the QAnon Caucus at the same time. Clearly, there are Senate Republicans concerned with that situation. America should be concerned with that situation. But let's proceed with what's in front of us right now, which is the outrageous decision to place her on the Education Committee. Most Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, have said they're outraged by Taylor Greene's utterances. But Rules Committee Ranking Member Tom Cole says committee assignments belong to the party making them. Using vile anti-Semitic slurs, degrading those with special needs, endorsing violence against political leaders, and further victimizing those who have suffered unimaginable trauma is absolutely repugnant and is unbecoming of any member of Congress. However, the action the majority is taking today raises questions that have nothing to do with Congresswoman Green, but concern the institution as a whole, which is why I feel that this hearing is premature and should instead uh, first be adjudicated by the Ethics Committee. Proceeding down the current path establishes a new standard, not only for what members of Congress say uh, before they are elected, but also what rights the majority party has to dictate the committee assignments of the minority members. Throughout the history of this institution, majority and minority have respected the right of each side to assign their members to committees. And it's also been the responsibility of each side to hold their members accountable for unacceptable behavior. House Rules Committee Ranking Member Tom Cole. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced on Tuesday that local governments can start vaccinating restaurant workers. It's an expansion of his vaccine program coming after the federal government announced an increase in vaccine supplies. Local governments will now receive a 20 percent increase in doses each week. Taxi drivers and those in developmentally disabled facilities have also been added to the 1B vaccination group. The group first included grocery workers, older adults, teachers, transit workers, and first responders. And the mayor, Mayor Bill de Blasio, has repeatedly blamed the lack of available vaccine for the slow rate of vaccinations in the city. But he also mentions vaccine hesitancy, the tendency of some populations, particularly black men, to resist calls to vaccinate. Today, reporters asked Mayor de Blasio why he hasn't gotten the vaccine himself as other political figures, including President Biden and Vice President Harris, have. de Blasio told a story of an elderly woman to illustrate his decision not to jump the line. When I went out to Hillcrest High School in Queens, uh, one of the first sites we had open for vaccination, I talked to uh, seniors, folks in their 70s, folks in their 80s. I talked to Marsha, who was 97 years old, lived her whole life in Uh, Southeast Queens, talked to me about her family, talked to me about everything that happened in her life, uh, told me that she lived in fear of this disease and was so excited to get vaccinated because she knew that from the moment she even got the first shot, she would have protection. Uh, Imagine 97 years old and willing to go to a vaccination center because it meant so much to her just to have that reassurance that she finally had some protection from this horrible scourge that's been with us for a whole year now. Uh, I think it is incumbent upon all of us who do not yet meet the criteria to defer to those in greater need. I don't want to get a vaccination when a senior citizen could be getting that vaccination or a first responder could be getting that vaccination. 
Mayor de Blasio. The modern roots of vaccine hesitancy are buried in the files of the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, where hundreds of men with a dangerous disease were denied treatments by government and private health care providers as part of a half-century-long experiment. The co-author of the book, Tuskegee and the Health of Black Men, is Marianne Wanamaker. She's Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Tennessee. She says vaccine hesitancy is real. I tend to think about anti-vaxxers as having some conspiracy theory in in the back of their minds um, that then leads them to be skeptical about vaccines. Or said another way, even if you don't want to go to conspiracy theories, that there's that they have an opinion or a a, um, they have an impression of vaccines that's not based in fact. What I think is different about the Tuskegee experiment and about vaccine hesitancy among African Americans is that it is based in fact. It 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 did happen to them, and it's one of actually multiple um, uh, episodes of medical exploitation. Many of them in in history, right? But 1972 is actually not that long ago, um, and so I do think it's an important clarification that yes, you know, yes, people are hesitant, but they're hesitant for good reason. Wanamaker says the untreated syphilis study began because the disease was impacting military readiness during the First World War. So the federal government began the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in 1932. And it was a response, actually, to a high rate of absenteeism during World War One, where venereal disease, as it was called at the time, was rampant among American troops. And syphilis was the most debilitating of them all. And so the federal government became interested in understanding how syphilis affects the body. In 1932, when they finally got it together to kind of do this study, of course, it was the Depression and funds were light. And so they did the least expensive version of the study they could come up with. They did an observational study of untreated syphilis. And the idea was that they would enroll men in the South, some who were infected with syphilis and some who were not, and then observe the course of the disease for some undetermined amount of time. And so they did. They enrolled about 600 black men. Most of them were extremely poor and lived in rural Alabama. And about 400 of them were already infected with syphilis when the study began. So there's a common misconception that the government infected these men. That's not true. Or there's no evidence that that's true. But instead, they passively watched what happened to them as syphilis continued its course. You might be able to tell a story that that was relatively innocent at the beginning, but in 1945 or so, it became clear that penicillin was an effective treatment for syphilis. So at that point, passively watching people suffer from untreated syphilis became obviously morally indefensible. Who was doing this? What government agencies were doing this? It's the predecessor to Health and Human Services. It was a government body that performs the functions that Health and Human Services and CDC perform now. Finally came to an end. How did it end? It continued for 40 years, actually. And in the early 1970s, there was a whistleblower within the National Health Service who finally said, you know, this isn't right. And they continued to observe these individuals through that time. And they were still watching these men and recording um, what was happening to them all the way through 72. This guy raised his hand multiple times internally and said, we've got to do something about this. And his superiors didn't take any action. And so he called a reporter at the Associated Press by the name of Gene Heller. And in 1972, Gene Heller wrote these exposés, a series of exposés, which were syndicated. 
And so then the the news of Tuskegee spread through the country very quickly after she did that. And immediately the, the program was ended. There was a congressional inquiry into the program almost immediately after that, which came with it some compensation for the victims, but not very much money was in that legislation. What is syphilis? Is it a deadly disease? Of course, it's a sexually transmitted disease. So one of the tragedies of this story is that these individuals passed it on to sexual partners. Not only their own disease could have been treated, but the transmission to other people in their lives could have been prevented with different action from the federal government. A sexually transmitted disease, quite debilitating. It has a number of different symptoms. The most telltale sign of syphilis is is the destruction of the tissue in the nose and kind of a collapsed nose is a good sign that an individual has syphilis. We don't see those effects today because it is, of course, highly treatable and it was highly treatable by 1945. Did you think that had an effect that might be we might see today in what we call vaccine hesitancy, this uh, fear to jump into any sort of government programs, especially if you're African-American? The perpetrators of the Tuskegee experiment, it was both the private health system, which collaborated with the federal government to observe these men and not treat them. The moral failures came both from the private health system and from the federal government. If you think about what we're going through right now from a vaccine perspective, it's the federal government operating through private practice, asking people to do something. And so it's the same agents um, as the Tuskegee experiment. And actually the same agents were present in another time in American history where we think these same sort of hesitancies were really important, and that was the AIDS epidemic. So the AIDS epidemic was, again, the story of the federal government trying to get people to do something, get treated, acting through the private health system. A lot of people attribute the hesitancy of black men in particular, and in particular in the South, during the 1980s to this legacy of Tuskegee, just like the vaccine issues today. Marianne Wanamaker is co-author of the book, Tuskegee and the Health of Black Men. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office is considering whether to prosecute Steve Bannon for state crimes. The former senior White House advisor received a pardon in a federal criminal case from then-President Donald Trump. Bannon, who ran Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, was charged last year in federal court in Manhattan with defrauding donors who contributed millions of dollars to a private group that claimed to be building a portion of the border wall with Mexico. The feds say he pocketed more than $1 million in funds donated to the We Build the Wall project. Bannon was one of dozens of people pardoned by Trump two days before he left office. Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance's office is also seeking to reinstate state fraud and other criminal charges it had lodged against Paul Manafort, who was Trump's other 2016 campaign chief. And in an exclusive report, WBAI News has been looking into the White House pardon process under Trump with allegations of favoritism and payoffs, although a number of the pardons were legitimate. A former CIA whistleblower, John Kiriakou, spent nearly two years in prison for releasing information during a TV interview about the CIA torture program. In 2007, he was cleared, but the Obama White House secretly reopened the case and Kiriakou pled guilty rather than risk a life sentence. In an attempt to reclaim his pension, the former CIA agent who captured a top al-Qaeda operative decided to ask Trump for a pardon. It cost him $50,000 and he got to know Rudy Giuliani. Our mistake with Trump was assuming that he was a rational actor, and he's not. Like many people, including Julian Assange and Ed Snowden, I believed that I had a chance to actually get a pardon. And not just because it was the right thing to do, but because the same people who went after me went after Donald Trump. It was John Brennan 
who asked the Justice Department to reopen the case against me. It was Robert Mueller who created the John Kiriakou task force at the FBI. It was Peter Strzok who put the cuffs on me. So I thought, well, these are exactly the same people going after Trump. Maybe I have a shot. Through my attorney, I hired a Republican lobbyist. This was a woman who had run the Trump 2016 campaign in Florida. I asked her to sort of oversee my efforts to lobby the executive and ask Trump to pardon me. I might as well have just taken the $50,000 that she charged me and flushed it down the toilet because she didn't do any lobbying. She just sort of went through the motions and pretended that she was working for me. In the meantime, completely unrelated to my pardon application, a buddy of mine who is quite wealthy at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic had 500 million KN95 masks made at a manufacturer in China. And he called me and he said, hey, we can make a lot of money. Help me sell these masks. I said, great, we're all going to get rich. So he calls me a couple of weeks later and he says, I think I sold 150 million masks to the Pentagon, but it's jammed up in procurement. I need to hire somebody to lobby the Secretary of Defense to release the money. Do you know Rudy Giuliani? I said, I didn't know Rudy Giuliani, but I knew some people around him. I knew Bernie Carrick specifically. So I called Bernie Carrick and I said I needed to get to Giuliani. Carrick wanted a little taste. I said, no problem, plenty of money to go around. And he put me in touch with a guy named Randy Mastro, a longtime aide to Giuliani, former deputy mayor of New York. I talked to Mastro and he said, oh, we're going to be in Washington on July the 1st. Let's get together for drinks at the Trump Hotel. We can talk about the masks. So we got together around two o'clock in the afternoon. And during a lull in the conversation, I said, well, since we have agreed on the masks, we're all going to go to the Pentagon together. There's this issue of a presidential pardon. As soon as the words came out of my mouth, Giuliani got up and said, I got to hit the head. And he walks to the men's room. And Mastro says to me, Rudy doesn't talk about pardons. You're going to have to talk to me. I said, that's cool. He said, but Rudy's going to want two million. And I laughed and I said, two million bucks. I, I don't have two million bucks. And even if I did, I wouldn't spend it to recover a $700,000 pension. Forget it. And then that was the end of the conversation. Now, with the masks, we went to the Pentagon a couple of days later. As we're walking in to the building, Rudy stops and says, I don't want a million for this meeting. I want two million. And my friend said, whoa, wait a minute. We have an agreement for a million. And it was a million dollars just to do the meeting with the Secretary of Defense. So Rudy said, nope, I want two million. And my friend said, forget it. And Rudy walked back to the car and sat in the car and the meeting was a failure and we never sold the masks. And that's John Kiriako. He's a CIA whistleblower. Randy Mastro was the chief lawyer for an Upper West Side NIMBY group last year trying to evict homeless people from a hotel. And Secretary of State Anthony Blinken agrees with Israel that Iran should produce a nuclear weapon in six months if it went all out. He has also supported the accords that Trump signed with several countries normalizing relations with Israel and moving the capital to Jerusalem, despite peace accords with Palestinians. Democrats have also agreed with the GOP in denouncing the Boycott Divestment Sanctions or BDS movement, an international organization trying to repeat the success of the anti-apartheid movement that succeeded in freeing Nelson Mandela and ending white rule in South Africa. 
One of the activists who participated in the African National Congress from its earliest days in the 1960s, not the early days of the organization, which of course was founded 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, but in the earliest days of the modern struggle against apartheid, uh, was Ronnie Casrels. He's the author of many books, including Armed and Dangerous, My Undercover Struggle Against Apartheid, and his more recent book, Catching Tadpoles, The Shaping of a Young Rebel. I come from a generation of young Jews who celebrated as a 10-year-old the birth of Israel, 1948. I knew nothing other than that the Jews who had been persecuted in Europe now had a land which had been empty. And when we started realizing there were other people there, they were depicted as people who just wanted to kill us. You have to cut through that and understand what Zionist as a political doctrine is, as applied in state terms, in legal terms, so that you see it manifest itself as totally racist, inclusivist for Jews only, and as an apartheid state. Jews everywhere need to use their history the understanding of the Holocaust and what justice is all about to understand why it's so necessary to deal with Israel in terms of BDS for the people of the world as they helped South Africa overcome a dreadful racist regime in the same way to save Jews and their reputation and their culture and so on, their religion. So that people look on it and that the Muslims and Christians and Hindus, you know, see it as one of the powerful moral religions of the world and not as something being used as a political to 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 reinforce the political doctrine that is Zionism. According to Casuals, BDS is an important and legitimate tool to help Palestinians. And I know of cases of people being driven out of jobs academically, uh, lives, careers ruined. Imagine being a, a Jewish dissident, believing in the right and the justice for Palestinians within Israel. And look how it's grown. And that was what happened within South Africa itself. And the fact that it inspires others who you're standing by, who in turn come to support and, and inspire you. So this is life. It's a wonderful process. You might feel that you're losing so much. In fact, you gain so much. You become a stronger, more decent person, a stronger character, a more morally upright character, which is worth more than all the jewels in in the Queen's <laughs> chambers in Britain or, or what Rockefeller has. Casual says the resistance to the BDS movement is real and the young activists should choose a life of service over a craven chase for money. Zionism is a political doctrine and it's a narrow nationalistic doctrine like apartheid was for the Africana and the whites of South Africa to preach a racial exclusivity, to exclude all others except the whites, and in this case, except the Jews. So when one can justly criticize a political doctrine, a theory, and a theory that's implemented, it's not attacking the religion. 
It's not attacking the people. It's critical and it's attacking Israel for its injustice in international law and in human rights law. We don't object to a criticism of Saudi Arabia or Egypt because of its lack of democracy, its injustice. Why then, if we criticize Israel, is that equated to being anti-Semitic? It's clearly the same defense mechanism to confuse people, to put fear in people's minds, as was the case with apartheid South Africa using the communist brush against its opponents. Ronnie Castro participated in the African National Congress armed struggle and later served as a government official in the Mandela government. He's the author of many books, including Armed and Dangerous, My Undercover Struggle Against Apartheid, and the recent book, Catching Tadpoles, The Shaping of a Young Rebel. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo, and I'll be providing links on my page, pauldirienzo.com, and on WBAI.org, so you can hear the entire interview with Ronnie Casuals. Thank you.